This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome back, every Bendy Body. This is the Bendy Bodies podcast, and I'm your host and founder, Dr. Linda Bluestein, the Hypermobility MD. This is going to be a great episode, so be sure to stick around until the very end so you don't miss any of our special hypermobility hacks. As always, this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for personalized medical advice. Before I introduce your guest, I would like to reintroduce you to my colleague and friend, Dr. Pradeep Chopra, who will be your guest co-host for this episode. Dr. Chopra is a pain management expert who specializes in complex pain conditions and has been a guest multiple times on the Bendy Bodies podcast. Be sure to check out those episodes if you have not heard them already. Dr. Chopra, hello and welcome back to Bendy Bodies. Hello, Dr. Bluestein and Dr. Bolognese. My pleasure to be here once again. Wonderful. And could you introduce our special guest for us? Yes, our very special guest for us today is the wonderful Dr. Paolo Bolognese. He is a neurosurgeon. He is a founder of the Chiari Neurosurgical Center in New York. Dr. Bolognese is also the board of directors of the American Syringomyelia and Chiari Alliance Project, Inc., on the scientific, he is also on the scientific education and advisory board of the Chiari Syringomyelia Foundation uh, and a member of the International Consortium on EDS, HSD, and related disorders. The Chiari EDS Center is focused on the diagnosis and treatment of Chiari 1 malformation, syringomyelia, craniocervical instability tethered cord, eagle syndrome, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, and intracranial hypotension. That's a lot of work you do. Dr. Bolognese's surgical experience includes more than 1,600 Chiari decompressions and 900 craniocervical fusions. He is just a few short of mine. 300 of which with condyler screws. He's also on the board of the main national and international organizations focused on Chiari and syringomyelia and has also made contributions in the field of intraoperative ultrasound and laser Doppler flowmetry. I have no idea what that is, but sounds <laughs> really fantastic. Thank you very much. Dr. Bolognese, hello and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Thank you for having me here. I'm very, very glad to be here. Oh, wonderful. We are thrilled to chat with you. And if you could start out by telling us briefly how you became interested in EDS and related conditions. It was a total accident. I came to the United States. I retrained again. And uh, the chairman who trained me uh, decided to take me uh, when he left his, uh, his former hospital. So he wanted to start the Kiariwa Malformation Center. And at that point, you know, 
Um, there were just a few cases done nationwide. So the case, the fact of having two neurosurgeons building a center together was kind of like building a Yankee stadium and you just have a, yes. a couple of kids from the neighborhood going and going and play. It did not make sense. What we did not know is that we were ahead of the curve uh, of a big wave of incoming cases, which were newly diagnosed by MRI and, and by patient awareness. So long story short, we're having this Chiari center and we, you know, it's, we're operating together. I was seeing the outpatients and um, I was seeing, you know, several patients in a day and several for Chiari surgery means six in a day. And all of a sudden I see that two of them had ls syndrome. And then the following time I was seeing uh, patients, I saw another two. And then the following week, I found another four. And, you know, just like it, what were the chances for these things just to be uh, associated by by sheer chance? So I went to him and uh, I said, you know, I think that there is something strange here. I found it too many, too many times. He was, you know, he gave me a dose of healthy skepticism, you know, like because he was the older guy and I was the younger guy. And then one month later, I went back to him and I said, listen, you know, there is definitely, it, it, it is, I keep seeing it, so it is not an accident. And he was again skeptic. And by the 89th patient over a few months, I made an Excel file for him and I showed him, okay, so we have patients who are younger, the ratio between women and men is instead of three to one in nine to one. Uh, they have a different phenotype. They are younger. They have different uh, other comorbidities, and uh, you know, and they tend to have all these things about which you know we know just to remember a couple of footnotes from school. Ehlers Danlos syndrome was not really a, right. a main thing in in education in medical school. So you know, at that point he. It's not that he was convinced, but he picked up the phone and he called the geneticist from Duke, who was the uh, international leader in the field of genetics of care. And she says, you know, I've never heard it myself, but statistically you've seen this many care, this many EDS, the chances for this to be chance alone were, I don't remember how many, several millions to one. And... Uh, so he picks up the phone and he calls the person in charge for connective tissue disorders. And, and that person was Claire Francomano. Mm -hmm. And Claire Francomano was the uh, director of the Department of Aging, which is practically connective tissue disorder and all those, all those things. And all of a sudden, it was a bizarre, uh, it was a bizarre phone call because all of a sudden, we we're all four of us are giddy because we're completing each other's sentences. So all of a sudden we are, you know, we're uh, kind of, there is this chemistry instantaneously because they were having uh, pieces that, uh, and vice versa. So they could not explain why there are so many neurological problems in their EDS patients. On the other end, we're not, you know, we're simply ignorant about what probably we should have opened a textbook before talking to them. But, uh, so at that point, it was natural for us to start cooperating. And so that's how we started. Okay, so you did, you worked on this for some more years than us. We're kind of, we're so uh, 
not ahead because we were smart. We were just stumbled into that. And uh, so we couldn't call anybody. And we started doing surgeries. And then we learned the hard way by X on the face uh, what was working and especially what was not working technically by applying the standard, uh, the standard technique that we knew about. And so um, we started going at national meetings. We started talking about Taylor's Danlos syndrome and uh, nobody bought into it. Mm. So for years, actually, we were said, you know, we were told, ah, you know, like, I don't think that that's that. I never seen the, the classical um, reaction of other colleagues, which was obvious, was, uh, you know, I never seen a patient with Ehlers Danlos syndrome my entire career oh, among wow. the care population. <laughs> so uh, this next person coming on the scene was Dr. Henderson. Dr. Henderson had a, um, like me, had a kind of a strange career because he was coming from Australia and um, like me, went in the military as part of the, the regular draft. Before coming to the United States, he made a stop at uh, in London in a place called Queen Square. And Queen Square is was at that point was the the center of the world for everything which was related to uh, cranial cervical instability. Because not at that point, not because of EDS, but because the old British ladies, they were developing this uh, strange disease called rheumatoid arthritis, which is a sort of a inflammatory reaction yeah, which right. attacks the, the joint, etc. But instead of making just the ligaments weak, creates a an inflammatory mass called the penis, which compresses, pushes things around. So he had, he was there um, and he was trained by the god of craniocervical instability called Crocard. So when he came in the United States shortly afterwards, he, he had the same reaction. He said, all right, uh, I studied craniocervical instability. I know to do craniocervical fusion much more than an average neuro, neurosurgeon in the States. Uh, I understand the point because I've seen enough people with uh, having, you know, destruction of the of the joint. So I understand the point. I'm going to start going ahead. So all of a sudden, we were two hospitals starting working on that. Now, all of a sudden, you know, a lot more and more patients starting coming over. And uh, at the beginning was Chiari 1 malformation and LS Danlos like a comorbidity. So, so it is right. what is called now complex Chiari, uh, which means that the Chiari is now, the surgical management is rendered more um, complicated by the fact that the joint is defective. Right. But the very first time that we met the patient was pure EDS was uh, was the following year, was in 2002, after the, the first time that we observed. And there was this girl that now, you know, would check all the boxes for the three of us, you know, very debilitated, uh, age 17, three, four years of progressive debilitation, unable to get out of the wheelchair, nobody sees anything, nobody is all in your head, you know, this is the usual routine. And the mother who had gone anywhere, she came to us because she thought that maybe as a form of carry one malformation, came there, she checked everything else. And I look at the MRI, and the MRI was 
kind of some shade of gray, but was more towards in the shade of grays between full Chiari and normal was more in the left side of the of the spectrum than normally. And but I was seeing that this patient was really sick. So I know what happened. You know, I got up, I went around the table because I really did not know what to call. And I grabbed her head and I pulled her up and all of a sudden she woke up. And she perked up, she was able to, to move around, she was able to swallow, and then I left it down and she went reverted. So five, six times. The mother was all excited because she hadn't seen it that way, even for a few seconds for four or five years. So I went back to Mira, you know, my mentor, and I told her, listen, this is a kind of a black box scenario. I do not know what's inside. Neither you do, because right now the MRI looks normal-ish. Uh, there is no carry one malformation. There is no retroflexodont. There is no nothing. But every time I pull her up, she feels better. Every time I let her go, she feels worse. So looks some kind of craniocervical pathology resembling cranial settling, like settling of a, of a house right. on the foundation. Right. Don't understand how it is, but we if... Make it feel like make it like this feels makes it feel better. We can do a fusion. So at that point, there was already a jump from the complex carry, in which the MRI was self-evident, to a, a scenario we have now: pure neuroEDS with instability, in which the patient was um, the patient had that you know that normal MRI, but but a big clinical change, much more than a carry one malformation by itself. So. You know, like Mira, they had the courage, professional courage to say, because like one time he's a young punk, at that point was 42, we're not so young, but I was still a young punk compared to him. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, like we can do this. He could have said, you know, the heck we're going to do it. I'm going to have half of the neurosurgical community after me. And instead he said, you know, I see the same. And uh, so... We had her coming back, we did a fusion, and now we know that it's not a surprise for us back then was the hell of a surprise mm -hmm. uh, to see that she went well. And then not only she went well, but she her story was kind of like a Cinderella story. She ended up becoming a supermodel for the Ford agency in New York City. And uh, she stayed there, became, she was a high-end supermodel international for four or five years. Then she got married and now I'm uncle for the third time. She's every time baby is born, she sends me pictures. <laughs> so I, th these were kind of two different paths. And uh, so those are the, the, the second patient was so kind of the Rosetta Stone of, of neuroEDS. It was the step forward from just the Chiari EDS. And then at that point is all the problems. The problems are diagnostic and the problems are technical surgery. And that they start here at that point. Like, uh, uh, when do you call it? How do you call it? How do you grade it? Exactly. What kind of workup you do rather than just shooting from the hip? Uh, practically to create you know, science is always something that keeps going, sometimes accelerating, sometimes stagnating. And when there is no book to read, you just find out. It well, is not... you write the book. In that case, you, you write you, the book. 
I, you know, like some chapters you discover afterwards that you write them and then in retrospect there, uh, the test of time says, okay, you have to do this other thing instead, you know, like, but you're always, between the fog of war, the perspective, etc., is uh, you're always, you're always as smart as the last, last lesson you learn. True. What we did not understand at that point was that, um, again, being ignorant was, and having nobody to, to ask, was that the problem was way more complex we were anticipating. The, the neuro-EDS model was, was, we were having so many additional pieces that we're still finding out. And uh, so then the diagnostic about, again, how to assemble a workup which makes sense uh, and on one on the other because there is a balance one you cannot be so um, zealous you say okay it is what it is and I'm going to operate them like that. you have to have some criteria uh, the concept of the criteria is that you have to be rigid and flexible at the same time right you have to be flexible about the idea strategically that the criteria that you have today could evolve over time. But you have to be rigid tactically. So the version 3.1 or the set of criteria you have now, that's a line in the sand and you do not pass it. You do not do a mulligan and you push it on the other side when nobody looks. Because then otherwise you're not going to have a hard ground to stand on when you look back and you make an evaluation or the version 3.1 when you discover that there are some limits and then you do the version 4.0, you know? Um, and then there were all the problems which are purely technical about uh, uh, the surgery, about, okay, you have a surgery that works for any other things, you do it, and then you discover afterwards, again, what works, but especially what doesn't work, and you and you move forward. So... It's so, a long, it's a long answer as usual. But no, no, no. Th- that was a that was a great story because we wanted to know how you began, and it looks like you and Dr. Henderson were the pioneers um, in this field. And it's not an, an I mean, even at, even today, after all these years, we're still learning and understanding uh, the nuances of uh, EDS. And you were in the middle of the, I mean, the spine itself, even without EDS, is such a complex structure. And even in the spine, the cervical spine is probably the most complex structure. You know, it balances a heavy head. And you've, you were the, you were the pioneers in um, this surgery. So we, so the question that I have is that, you know. <clears throat> We, if I suspect somebody has um, a patient with EDS has CCI, craniocervical instability, or mm-hmm. carry malformation, and I say, "Hey, listen, I want you to see Dr. Bolognese. What is your process of evaluation? How do you start?" Um, so our listeners want to know, like, how you, how do you evaluate them? Okay, the again, um, what I have. The version that we have now is is the current permutation of all the all the things we have done over the years. And the good thing for me in terms of mentality is that uh, 
I had three mentors, which is like uh, extremely lucky for somebody to have. And the mentor who had the biggest influence over me was Mirat. Mirat was OCD to the core. And uh, he was just, um, he was never focused on, you know, it is like the shepherd that has 99 sheep and they're all fine and he's okay, but he loses his, uh, his sleep over the one sheep that is, is lost or if he's struggling or whatever. And every time I was saying, okay, so, you know, the textbook says that the complication rate for this is good. Well, we're better, so we're fine. I know, it's not good enough. Give me an idea. Like the Kiariwama formation surgery back in the 80s had a solid 50% complication rate. So when we went down, yeah, so when we went down to, you know, like around... 10% 10% of complication rate or whatever was an enormous improvement. Obviously, it comes from, you know, it's not, it's not being genius. Like, tying your shoes, you do it over and over, and you push yourself, and it's inevitable you're going to get to better numbers. But, uh, and I was saying, like, 10%, much better. And he was saying, no, it's not good enough. And one of them was the, the most important complication was cerebrospinal fluid leakage for a number of different reasons. So we went down to 3%, and it was still not good enough. And uh, then we went down to 0.3%. And at that point, all right, yeah, statistically, it's going to be a little bit difficult to go lower down. Uh, and so he was always pushing. So we're, uh, and again, going through the other direction, which is not only the diagnostic, the, the issue is not so much how many times you have it correct, with your procedure, but how many false negative and false positives you have. And right. you do not realize uh, the false negatives you realize later on when you know either somebody else's operates or you change your criteria and stuff. This was negative before, but that was wrong. But the false positives are the most important in terms of overall heat. And overall, you know, eggs in the face for the for a evolving uh, discipline or subdiscipline, because a false positive is going to potentially translate in a surgery. So at that point, you have a surgery that has not worked for can be because of poor selection or poor execution of a technique that you know, but you you did not executed correctly or simply because the surgery was indicated was correctly executed but that technique is not enough and you had to resort to something different that is not in the book yet Um, so when you after the first five or six years we're already having you know 300 cases and uh, we're all excited because, okay, this is a new, you know, cranial cervical instability is not a unknown pathology, but linked to EDS to do to that degree and with those connotations was something new. So we're excited about we're going to do 300 and then we're going to report it. We're going to wait some years because you cannot just do the surgery and say, okay, we observed for three months and we're fine. No, you have to kind of have, a, have good post-op 
And we look at that, and the complication rate was higher than the standard, for example, trauma or, or other pathologies like congenital in kid children. Not enormously higher, but higher enough that the implication was if we publish, uh, you know, we're not going to look great. And so also the pathology is not going to look that great. It's not going to get a good, uh, a good reputation because it, it, it kind of can sound disingenuous. They say, uh, yeah, we had uh, 10 times more the next level disease uh, in this patient, but it's not us. It's, it's not because of us. It's because of the pathology. You know, a reviewer looks into that and says, yeah, right. We're not going to publish it. So at that point, we did not publish intentionally the first hundreds of cases we did that we did with the bar plate uh, because they were not, you know, in order for something to be credible, you had to have at least the same outcome and the same complication rate of a conventional technique, conventional pathology. And then you can sell the new pathology for what it is. But anyway, like going, I, I took a detour. What is the, so we had the same problem about the, uh, about the diagnosis. The beginning was, okay, you pull the head up and you look at the MRI, it looks normal-ish, your patient's EDS, and that was pretty much it. And so over the years, we added more and more. So what is the situation now? The situation now is that we have an approach which is multi-legged or that one of a puzzle. And we pass in a situation in which the patient comes to be evaluated, already prescreened by somebody else, and we raise a level of suspicion before we send them to trial. It's like you are the DA and you listen to the police, you look at the body of evidence to see if somebody qualified to be indicted and be sent to trial. So we look at clinical history, provocative testing, radiology, and test trial. So the, the clinical is, is simple. You know, there is a series of uh, symptoms which are typical of every anatomical region. So if you have a, a sore, you know, a broken ankle, you're going to be limping it out. Uh, if you're going to have a bad stomach, you're going to have problem digesting. So there is a lot, a lot of cables and structures passing in the cranioscopical junction. So there's going to be a long list of signs and symptoms. Those are not exclusive of cranioscopical instability, but they're linked to the region. So if you have a, a trauma, a tumor, a congenital malformation, or neuroides affecting there, you're going to have the same symptoms with different kind of uh, severity, different kind of um, grouping, etc. But if you look at the at the list, you're going to see that that list becomes hot in the sense of how many positives you're going to have. So that's number one. Number two is provocative testing. So it is like if I have a broken arm and I will go like this, even if the arm is, even if the two stumps are aligned, but I do like this, the patient is going to complain. So it's like kicking a tire. You you play with the joint, and if the patient is, uh, the chief complaints and the symptoms of this area get 
worse or better respectively, that means that you are onto something for that. So that's number two. Number three is the history. So if somebody, for example, has, uh, you know, is already flexible before, one time falls on the head and twists the neck and all the symptoms start afterwards, is is one of the many parameters. Um, now, recently, for example, we are seeing a lot of patients uh, coming up with deteriorating EDS or or a sort of acquired form of EDS in long COVID patients with mm. a long COVID kind of uh, pushing the pushing the people over the edge. We've seen it with a lot of tropical diseases. So the history now is the third thing. The fourth one is morphometrics. You know, the majority of these patients when they come in they do not have so much in terms of radiology. So there is a big asymmetry between the chief complaints, which are devastating, quality of life is poor. And neurological exam quite often is normal-ish. So you don't, you don't have so much of a uh, massive, you know, the massive uh, hyperreflexia or clonus you can find in some patients. Most of the times the, the neural exam is... Uh, the signs are less than the symptoms. And the quality of life is enormously out of proportion with what the MRI presentation is. So what we use at that point is the morphometrics. And all the morphometrics which were available at that point were for trauma. And uh, there were about 18 parameters. The noticeable that GRAB or PBC2 did not exist yet was introduced a few years later. But there were 18 parameters back then. And the only principle was whatever parameter you use, you cannot just use one, you have to use two for the soul principle. The soul principle is you look at the soul, the fish, like this looks like gigantic, <laughs> like this, he looks different. So you have to have at least two complementary parameters to, to make an evaluation. Otherwise, you're going to have too many false positive, too many false negatives. So we tested for, uh, on, during invasive cervical traction, uh, a bunch of these, and we discovered that um, he was coming to us with these 18 parameters and we we're working together. And we were having an understanding about the what was abnormal with the, uh, the pathophysio of the joint down to the levels which were extremely sophisticated. But it was very counterproductive in terms of screening. So we boiled it down to three parameters, which then became four after the adduction addition of the grab. So certain things we noticed that were not really that helpful, like the power ratio, for example, in the, in the SDS, or the Chamberlain line, etc. But and others which were more helpful than usual. So what we're doing now, we're using these four parameters. Go ahead. Dr. Bolan, just one question for yeah. our listeners. When you say morphometric measurements, sure. you're, you mean measurements on the MRI, the angles that we are talking about, right? Yeah, it, it is almost correct in the sense that the morphometrics are measurements of uh, uh, distances, angles, or areas, or volumes that you can perform on different neuroimaging media. Otherwise, we get an MRI in supine, high definition, and we start doing the first set of four parameters. Um, then the fifth one is the diagnostic trials. Diagnostic trials means 
let's have somebody having repeated trials of traction at home or wearing a collar for a certain amount of days at home. And then if they have a, it is like turning a switch on and off all the time. If you have a consistent help every time you do certain maneuvers and you go back to square one when you remove the collar or you remove the traction, fine, at that point we have five points. Sometimes all five are positive, sometimes four are positive, one is negative, but you raise a sort of a body of evidence to have a level of suspicion. But at that point, we don't finalize the, finalize the diagnosis at the surgical level, which means, you know, for, for anybody who's a neurologist or a pain specialist, etc., that is enough just to say, okay, you have EDS, you have neuro-EDS, and you have a problem with cardiac junction. There is nothing wrong with that. But if somebody is referred to a surgeon, it's the responsibility of the surgeon to go to the Supreme Court before you start labeling somebody with that because as a neurosurgeon, they diagnose this as a heavier connotation. So at that point, we decided to have uh, the test of invasive cervical traction. The beginning was just like, a, all right, so if the patient does the traction at home, who tells us they're doing the right way? Sometimes they put in this leg like this or knee like this. Sometimes they have a bull neck. Sometimes they have a short mandible. So we just want to do something in the last minute before doing the surgery that confirms indeed that we can see with our eyes. And then we start adding the invasive cervical, sorry, the morphometrics to that. And, and then we reach the conclusion that uh, of giving scores. So again, first we have the pre-screening by the by the local physician or the EDS specialist comes to us, we put those five points together and then we say, okay, now you qualify, most likely you have this, but you qualify for verification. So our standard of giving the diagnosis, you have to pass this test. So they come, they do the test and, uh, and with the test we give scores. The scores are two, one is clinical and one is uh, radiological. The, the clinical is, it does not matter that at that point we already know that pulling your head up is going to make you feel better. We just want to do it under standard condition. But what's important next, since they're coming to a neurosurgeon, is fine, you did this diagnosis most likely, but do you pass a, do you pass a certain threshold of severity, yes or no? So what we consider the patient uh, is having a positive clinical score when the chief complaints improve by at least 75% from the baseline when off traction in the sitting position. So at the end of the test, if they have a test, you know, the chief complaints improve by 80%, at that point they have a severe craniocervical instability, at least with that, they have a positive clinical score. Then yet, in order to have a positive test, they also have, have a positive radiological score. The reason is this, as you know, you, you know very well, um, there are a lot of people with uh, EDS out there who have no symptoms. They're excellent, you know, ballerinas. They're phenomenal track and fielders. They get the gold for gymnastics for the U.S. Olympic team. So that's a demonstration that EDS 
is also an evolutionary mutation which has brought advantages, but becomes a medical problem when somebody falls off the cliff and they thinks they compensate. So the same things which make these people amazing, you know, skin which makes them look younger than what they are until a late age, uh, phenomenally attractive because the skeletal features are those, you know, demigods on earth, both men and women, <laughs> and athletic performances which are superior because of the way their uh, their tissues are. You know, these are the, you know, the, the, the captain of the football team and the, and the drum major from, you know, in the homecoming queen. Those are the people who are the idols. But if things start going in their own direction, they become our patients. So, you know, like if you have somebody who's hypermobile, who cares? So if you can have just a very positive morphometric change of certain parameters, that doesn't mean you're unstable. That means that you are hypermobile unless you also have a positive clinical score. So if you have a positive clinical score above a certain 75% of improvement and you have movements which are above the normal, but, you know, defined normal for the normal people, not normal for EDS, at that point, if you have the two together, at that point, the uh, invasive contraction is positive, and then we move on. And then the thing is that if the patient at 35 pounds feels great and they're happy, they're kind of joy. Recently, for the last year or so, when they're really happy, since they're going to go back down and, uh, you know, and be unhappy and with their brain fog when we remove the traction, when they are their happiest, I give them my phone and I have them calling their relatives. <laughs> and we take pictures, take videos. So whatever happens, they describe, you know, from the inside, they're always very touching. So like, is that the, uh, is that what is the, called the Jesus moment? Yeah. The, with, you know, because you can have also the, the patient that kind of wants to have it, you know, and they come in, whatever, and they tell you the song and the dance, like you've seen very often in the, um, uh, in the in the office, oh yes, I have this. But nothing wrong. Yeah, they can be hyper mobility, yes, whatever. But they're convinced they have craniocervical instability. So these people, you go up and they say, "How's the improvement?" And they say, "Yeah, it's eighty percent because they heard, you know, the thing." But you see on their face, the people who really have the eighty percent. Oh my God, I was not like this for for the last five years. Remember, there was this mother who was. Uh, she was having phonophobia, so she could not, she was going around with noise cancelling things. And she's in traction at 35 pounds, we removed it, she he came with the sunglasses and the noise cancelling, we removed everything. She looked in the surgical, you know, uh, surgical lights, and we have a boombox, we put it to the max, and uh, she can tolerate, all of a sudden she starts crying. And she says, I'm so happy now I can listen to music with my daughter. Mm. You know, these kind of things you cannot fabricate. On the other hand, the person who's leading not convinced is going to tell him, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it's 80%. <laughs> you, you know right. that they don't have it, even if they want to have it. Right. Can, can but, you... I'm sorry. I, 
So you gave a couple of examples of clinical mm -hmm. uh, signs and symptoms that, that people are presenting with. And because I think people are probably listening to this and chomping at the bit and going, wait, what are some of the other symptoms that people would present, be presenting with that you're looking for that 75 or 80% improvement? Um, could you share some more of those examples? Yeah, it's, it's actually... <laughs> Is one of those things that uh, you start with is like eating cherries, and then you discover that things are way more complex than you were anticipating. Um, for example, um, we were having patients that they were coming in and they were having improvement of the symptoms. And at that point, you ask yourself, okay, how much is coming from there and how much is coming from another mechanism? Okay, for example, you pull your head up, good, great, and uh, you can affect the instability, but it can also affect, in certain conditions, the jugular outflow coming out of the skull. Okay, so how you demonstrate one or the other. So at that point, we added another piece. Another piece was, is this. There are certain signs uh, neurological signs, which come from the lower part of the brainstem. For example, one is the coordination of swallowing uh, comes from the lower part of the brainstem and it involves a number of cranial nerves. And it takes about 14 different movements coordinated in a specific order for, for, you know, for stuff to go from the mouth to, you know, to the esophagus and goes on its own. And they're quite complex. The, the things which are not um, which are a little bit counterintuitive is that the swallowing of the solids and the swallowing of the liquids are not the same. And the swallowing of the solids, they tend to be um, pathologic mostly for mechanical problems. Like you have a cancer in the, mm. a cancer in the neck or you have an hematometer or simply somebody is doing like this to you, you cannot really swallow a piece of bread. Uh, but is pushing down a piece of uh, solid food is actually relatively an easy task for all the muscles and the nerves. On the other hand, swallowing liquids, which will look like, okay, you pour down is easy, is actually the most complicated. It requires a lot of things. It's, it's the difference of, you have, you know, like, my, my one of my grandfather was an intellectual, the other was a farmer, so I'm going to go with the farmer right now. <laughs> It is like you have to go through a gate with one cow or with 25 sheep or 25 cats would be probably better. So the cow is just beat them on the, on the ass and it's going to go in that direction. It's just one. But if you have 25 little animals, it's going to be thing. So the, uh, the liquid is going to be more like the 25 cats that really need to be, or 25 sheep really need to be, uh, directly specifically. So dysphagia for liquids is a typical neurological problem coming from, uh, which can be pinpointed in one of the many things, because if I cut the, the glossopharyngeal, obviously later on, but everything converges to the lower brainstem. The second thing which is there is breathing. So automatic breathing and all the regulation of thereof they're integrated in the brainstem as well, in the lower part. Then there is a third one, which is uh, the vision, but not so much vision acuity, 
by vision coordination. And so there is the median longitudinal fasciculus is extends throughout a big chunk, big big section of the uh, of the brainstem is mostly central, and allows us you know to keep us focused with our to no matter what we're doing with our neck, no matter what we're doing with our eyes, no matter what the target is doing, no matter if we are on a car and the target is moving on a uh, walking on the uh, you know on the sidewalk in the direction. Usually when I want to be buffoon, I tell the patients, okay, so imagine that you are in the car and you're driving this direction, all of a sudden there is Brad Pitt, because most patients are women, <laughs> and he's walking in the area. You want to look at him and looking very, very well and for that image to be burnt <laughs> inside your brain. So you don't want to, you would be disappointed to have a blurry or a jumpy picture. So at that point, the, the, the medial longitudinal fasciculus works in over in overdrive. So we put these three symptoms at the bottom of our list of the chief complaints. So now we're going to have two different scenarios. One in which the patient improves in everything. Okay? Then the other one in which you have the chief complaints do not improve, but the brainstem symptoms do. And then the vice versa. So now you realize that you have a different kind of way of understanding. So the first scenario in which everything goes gives you a higher level of confidence that not only the traction is making the chief complaints better, but since it would be at that point very, very difficult for all these things, including the chief complaints, which should be uh, part of the clinical list of the things which could come from the brainstem, plus those three selected things we're testing at that point, you know, it becomes more difficult to explain that these things are not coming from the brainstem, that they're actually coming from the brainstem being manipulated by the, by the interaction. On the other hand, if the symptoms improve, the chief complaints improve, but the brainstem markers don't, at that point you can have some kind of a level of a doubt of, mm, I'm not that convinced that it is coming from there. At that point, you put the brake on uh, before you give, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, the housekeeper seal of approval, the, you know, uh, of craniocervical instability is told by a neurosurgeon, and now I give you also the golden ticket for the surgery if you want, you know. So all these things are observations that, you kind of see a number of times, then finally come from unconscious to conscious, and then you build a system around it. Now, it's still going to be the permutation I'm going to use one, three years from now, I do not know, but right now it makes sense to me. Because the the major problem is not so much, you, know, you have to keep it, even when you're enthusiastic about what you're doing, about, and you're all sold and invested in the disease, uh, yet to be very skeptic for the individual patient. So every time you have to be, uh, you have to be in, you know, I'm not saying in love, but obviously all the three of us and many others there, we're already convinced that new ADS can affect the craniocervical instability. But it is much better for the cause if we are skeptic and dragging our feet, especially when if the surgery is a potential end for the individual patient. So again, strategy being 
optimistic, but tactical level for the individual patient to be the opposite. And that's yeah, that's what with a kind of strange forced into my head. Otherwise, I would have been just, yeah, let's go. Another one. Come on, let's go. So, Dr. Bolognese, one of the questions that we as practitioners get a lot is, um, oh, my God, invasive cervical traction, you know, sounds invasive. And yeah. Um, can you tell our listeners, like, how, like, number one, I mean, you explained to us why you do invasive cervical traction, and that was a very great, good explanation, but they also worry that, is it painful? Is it, is it difficult? Um, and how, like, they want to know a little bit more about, is it, is it a painful procedure? Okay, the first thing that I'm going to say is is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, which is this. Um, the best selection is to put the high bar uh, to discourage the, um, the faint-hearted. And, and I'm saying like this, you know, obviously there is a funnel going towards a, a, a neurosurgical specialty. So if I or the other people who are in my field. If we were seeing every single neuro ADS with any degree of instability, uh, we wouldn't do anything else. We wouldn't have the time to operate it, sir. So it is good. It is like you're waiting in line and there are a lot of people who are kind of wasting your time. Uh, if you are a patient who really needs surgery, is really sick, there are 99 patients ahead of them to see right. your surgery XYZ that they have mild degree of the disease. You know, that's a delay of care for the poor devil who's in. So it, it makes sense for us to have uh, scary things <laughs> outside of the door. <laughs> so the people who really have mild degree of the disease, they think twice. On the other hand, the people who are really sick, they're going to tell you, you know, it doesn't matter that you have to cut my arm, cut my arm. I have enough with this. I'm so sick. Uh, fine. You, you get to resist the, 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 the temptation of cutting the arm to make him happy. But, uh, if you have, if somebody is, uh, is squeamish about the idea about having an invasive testing, which is for their own, uh, help of avoiding a potentially unnecessary surgery. And they're squeamish about coming. Good. That's already a selection done. Okay. Of a big chunk of people. So I do not intentionally, I do not want to downplay the teasing. Oh, it's not really invasive. It's just, no, it's invasive, period. You know, you have two pins which are going through the skin in the outer layers of the skull. Take it or leave it. Fine. That said, there are other things. One is the fact that we are doing the test and other surgeons who are in the field that are not doing the test, automatically means that that is not, that we are right and they're wrong, or this is the standard, or, or vice versa, this is not the standard, just a waste of time. This makes sense for us at this point of our journey for all the things we have done for the last 23 years, period. That said, in a polite way, it's either this way or the highway, you know, like you... Uh, if you do not 
want to do the traction ends there. So like, don't try to come brown beat me with 500 emails per day. Oh, can I skip the try the invasive traction and go straight for the surgery? The answer is no. And he, I respect that. Fine is your decision. The test is elective. So, but without a positive test, without not only without doing the test and a positive result of the test, the the surgery is never going to be a, a an option from our part. All right. So that was the thing. Then how is the test is how is the test done? The patient comes in the operating room, and uh, we give him. Mac anesthesia and local anesthetic. Uh, so Mac anesthesia is like going for a colonoscopy. Well, it's addition. Old enough, you know. And uh, and the reason why we give Mac is that we don't want any kind of other medications like uh, fentanyl versus whatever to make the patient better or to make the patient sleepy. We want the patient fully awake when he comes back from probably is easily reversible. And then we also give local. Now, we all know that maybe some patients doesn't know by now, but if you use just lidocaine, it does not work. But if you use a mix of lidocaine and marcaine for any kind of procedure, including a dentist, it works much better. Uh, certain patients, you put lidocaine, and it is like you're not given anything at all. And yes. we also use a little touch of uh, epinephrine, unless there are contraindications because that prolongs the, the use of the local anesthetic. So by that time, the patient is asleep with local anesthetic. And once they, the secret of any kind of hardware in the body, wherever you put it, uh, internal, external, whatever, is that once you put something to attach to a bone and that piece of hardware is fixed and stable and doesn't move, you can pull the patient up like this, like a, pail of uh, water and it's nothing. It's like they don't feel anything. The problem starts if you do not put it loose, if you don't put it tight enough, it becomes loose. At that point, it hurts automatically how much is too much, how much is too little, etc. So that that's kind of um, routine. Then we wake him up. We just wait for the to the mechanism to the propofol to wear off and then we start. Mm-hmm. Um, about in applying the traction and whatever, we go up to 35 pounds for cases of uh, broken, you know, when you have a broken f- jump facet or whatever, any post-traumatic, you go up to 50, 60, you know, and nothing gets broken there. 35 is a safe level for, for our patient population to do the things we need to do. Now, there is the issue there of the fact that this is not the therapeutic procedure. So if you feel better during the traction, guess what? When we remove the traction, you go back to square one. Mm-hmm. So if the patient say, oh, I tried it at home, <clears throat> traction doesn't work because once I remove it and the symptoms come back, first of all, you should read the instructions <laughs> we send you, but uh, it's kind of expecting too much from a diagnostic test. It's like, I tried it, uh, you know, uh, I tried this test, but, you know, cancer came back afterwards. <laughs> you know, that's not therapy. That's just doing a biopsy to get some tumoral cells out to make a test doesn't cure your cancer. So that's the same kind of reasoning. Um, the, tissue, the issue is that some patients can have rebounds. 
And actually the rebound, which some patients say, ah, you know, it didn't, not only did not work if the symptoms came back, but for the first even non-invasive traction, uh, my, my symptoms were worse for a few hours afterwards. That actually is a sign that you are very unstable, that you're on the right side of the spectrum. So when somebody tells me I tried non-invasive traction at home and I had rebound, I already know that the patient is going to be positive on the ICT. So a rebound after the invasive cervical traction is going to be quite intense, but we keep the patient in the hospital for hours afterwards. So if they are in pain, guess what? You can, anesthesia is there, they can shoot, shoot you with something, something you cannot have in the comfort of your own home. Then there is the overall complications. We do something like uh, between two and four invasive tractions per week. We've been doing it for several years. And so far, nobody had complications at the pin side, which you do the, the math is not you know, it's quite favorable. Uh, Nobody had a broken neck as a result of that. And uh, there were two patients who were already scheduled for surgery two weeks later that they rebound, and we already knew they were very severe, and that the rebound was particularly intense and lasted more than a few hours, went into the following day. And so instead of doing the surgery two weeks later, we anticipated to the same hospital stay. So that per se was not a complication, it was just, you know, right. a rebound in somebody who was severe, it would have happened even with the non-invasive traction. But again, this is a elective test that we do. If somebody is worried, not only I'm not going to strong arm him to come in or try to convince him, I'm actually happy because you're not that sick after all. If you are, you know, it, it, there is something strange if you are, ready to commit for a surgery, but you're emotionally uncomfortable about doing an invasive test, which is used for selection. It doesn't make sense, which brings to the next issue that we had developed over the years. Um, back in the days before the MRI was used routinely, there was a five to 10 years delay between the onset of the symptoms and the corrective surgery for the severe cases. The EDS, yes, they have the paranoia can be even worse from the uh, there is nothing wrong with you, the MRI is normal, but their personality is different. These are type A personality that all of a sudden get frozen, and then once they're corrected, they bounce back, and you practically have to put the brake on them. Yeah, we are doing too much. So they're actually patients who are very, um, there's a lot of satisfaction because you know that you know that you're giving something and they're going to use it. But at the same time, we're having a, a kind of a different mix of, uh, of psychiatric disorders. All right, I'm going to go to something uncomfortable now, but first I'm making the point. The, the end point was that at the beginning, we were asking for a psychiatric screen only on the patients that in our early encounters or whatever, on the way to the surgery, we either were having some heavy diagnosis on the history, like attentive suicide, etc., or they're having heavy-duty drugs, psych drugs on board, or some heavy-duty diagnosis from before. So at that point, you say, okay, I send you to, you need to we need a psych clearance. Uh, but then I had a few patients who tricked us. 
a uh, few patients who did not tell us their diagnosis or the withhold information, or other patients that they acted apart, but then they decompensated at the time of the surgery. And these surgeries are big, so you need the full cooperation. You, you cannot have somebody sabotaging their own their own recovery because then they're going to derive, they're going to be exposed to more risk of complication. They're going to have, they're going to squeeze less out of the entire adventure. So we decided that we need to have a site clearance on everybody. But we had, we fabricated a new, uh, the, the current parameter is this. You get the clearance from somebody at home because somebody at home know you for a long period of time, but they know jack shit about what EDS and, and the surgery is about. But the guy at home who knows you needs to tell us, okay, is the patient optimized? Uh, is the patient reliable in telling us the symptoms and their intensities? Right. The patient has a support system at home. Uh, is the patient resilient enough can do all these things? And then there is a second independent um, um, screening, psych screening with us, with our neuropsychiatrist. Our neuropsych doesn't know these people from before because the encounter is just once, but knows very well two things. Number one, what the neuro-EDS constellation implies in terms of psych evaluation. And number two, what the surgery is about and what's ahead. So he is going to be the guy that pushes back and kind of... Uh, pokes them inside just to see, okay, you know, I kind of challenge you. But you're really sure? Yeah, you, you know, like whatever. It, it is all is. It's not that it is a game. It's just because it, I say I say right now it's going to happen. But it's all in, uh, in all just for the patient to have one last really moment of uh, insight. Because sometimes you're so invested. Oh, I'm going to see the neurosurgeon. I'm going to have the surgery. I'm going to be good. But that is just like, okay, that little shaking that somebody needs, you know, like, uh, and we don't do it before the surgery. We do it at the time of the invasive cervical traction. Yes. Because if you're coming, let's assume, like we did, for example, several years ago, that we were having the uh, psych clearance two days prior to the surgery. At that point, it's a kind of a loaded circumstance. The patient is already involved, the insurance is approved, you know, the machinery is going, you know, it's a different kind of psychological pressure. On the other hand, when they come for the invasive traction, they don't have a clear cut, clear cut. They don't have a confirmed diagnosis yet. And they don't even know if they they're going to be a surgical candidate or not because they don't know what the score is going to be. All right. Um, so what Dr. we noticed. Yeah, go ahead. I had another question. I'm sorry. Um, Firstly, your neuropsychiatrist is amazing. A lot of a lot of the patients that I have sent who have seen him actually want to keep him as their yeah. psychiatrist. So he's I can't remember his name right now, but they Fine. they love him. He's great. Yeah. He's and he's he's very uh <clears throat> Like you said, he, he he helps them understand exactly what they are going to go through. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them feel like, yeah, this is the first time they have met somebody who really understands. My my question was that we are we are spread apart, like 
you know, Dr. Bluestein is in Colorado, I am in Rhode Island, and there are other physicians everywhere. And you are in New York City. And you have something called the Second Opinion Report. Yeah. Which I have, I have read many, many times. And I think it is phenomenal. It is, it is a really good report. Uh, so can you tell our listeners? Yeah, yeah, I tell you a secret. Some of the, the some of the things of the report, how I structure actually, I copy from you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's why I like it so much. Well, so our so for for patients who live in far off places, um, as you know, New York is a, is a, is not a cheap is an expensive city to come. So the second opinion report really helps them understand what's going on with them and what to expect and what should be the next steps in the diagnosis. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it can is you a tell good us idea, a little bit more about obviously, that? Obviously, yeah, it's actually coming from um, something coming from uh, COVID and legislation. Uh, telemedicine, as you know, is something that is relatively recent, but since more than 90% of our patients since 2001 were from outside the tri-state area, you know, it was kind of problematic to ask the patient, okay, come the first time, and then you do this testing, and then you come a second time, and then finally I'm going to give you a diagnosis. Before you know it is at least two trips. And two trips around the country by somebody who's sick, they need to come for with their companion who has to take time off, gets complicated. So in 2004, we were looking into telemedicine with our health system back then, and there was no legislation nationwide. Uh, actually, one state, Texas, was back then uh, was prohibiting any kind of doctor to call on the phone from outside Texas because they want their patient to be poached. So they, our health system said, you know, good, you guys want to do telemedicine. Guess what? You cannot do it. So it took several years afterwards, and then we were allowed to do telemedicine, you know, to, to have this. Then COVID came, and back then, really, there was no, the legislation was kind of, there were not so many people doing it. But then COVID came, and uh, started becoming everybody did it and with that the legislation became more precise so when you see somebody uh with that there are specific things and information you know things about um um you know licensing etc and so at that point we had a decision to make a decision to make was do we go back to the model before in which the patients come multiple times or we do something similar and by that point, uh, they, in some institutions, in Stanford, I guess, was one of the first, they did the second opinion model. Second opinion model means you send, they did something structured, which was already up in the air with other names, but you send in your, uh, your clinical information, gets reviewed by a committee, then a junior attending or where the poor guy at the bottom of the barrel uh, has to become described and then sends it back to the patient. And uh, that's it. So we saw some value in that. And the, the value is this. We 
instead of we seeing you in the office and then we tell you this is the work appeared to do or whatever, we front load everything. And we say, okay, these are the things you have to do before. Once everything is in, once you fill up our, you know, long, long, long multi-page uh, clinical essay, once you're going to have done with this and you enter the history and blah, blah, then if you see other specialists good at their, their letters too, you know, uh, I know that when, when I have one of your letters, I, I can just kick my feet up because you, <laughs> you already done everything. I just, the only thing I have to say is, the following diagnoses have been suspected by Dr. Chopra, and I fully agree. <laughs> so that's an easy day. But anyway, like, uh, so at the end of that letter, uh, what we can say is, okay, we have suspicions about this, and uh, the clinical, historical, pro provocative testing, radiological, and things we've done so far, because they already give us, in a, we already told them the homework. Raise suspicion, you know, a, a critical mass of uh, suspicion for the following diagnosis, for which we need additional additional testing. This is the additional testing. We tell, okay, so you need this, this, and this, and if you want us to confirm it, you come here for invasive testing. So at that point, the first encounter is done with us, and we're already, you know, three three four steps ahead with what have been done. In the past, in the past, we have reached that thing like after six or nine months, after two or three visits with these patients, poor guys going back and forth. So the the second opinion, for sure, uh, you know, avoids that. But then we figure out another thing was that a lot of patients, since you know we we didn't make it so expensive, a lot of patients were just curious and not particularly sick. They were writing in. So at that point, we needed somebody to do a screening to separate the patients who were not very severe, not to go to the surgeon, but to go to the other components of our team who are just for the conservative part, you know, because obviously don't throw surgery to everybody, anybody. But at least to prevent the, uh, you know, the people who were sick to have a long line, 50% of which was made by patients who were just mildly sick. No, obviously, we're still right. refining the process, but so so far it's working pretty well. Yeah, because at the end of all that, when the patient comes in the hospital, the all the muscle part, for example, your your notes are as long as mine, and you know it takes a long, long time to put all the thing. So when they come into the hospital, it is okay. All this is already in the bank; is already worked out. Now we just need to check on these three, four items. And everything else has already been digested, they already read it, whatever. So now we focus on this. So the encounter in the hospital doesn't become like sort of a man. I already talk too much myself, but doesn't become like a meandering adventures with a lot of loose ends that then get never tied up. So everything becomes more a, a effective. So one of the, <coughs> so now, I think we've, we, what, what we understand is, and I'm just summarizing it for the readers, uh, listeners, is that the first thing you do is you ask them to fill out some forms, upload their images, uh, radiological images, and then based on that, you, you come up with a suspicion of 
the following diagnoses. Yeah. And then, and then if the patient is has has whatever hairy malformation, then, then actually, then actually depends. If the patient has mild symptoms, for example, you can have a monster hairy malformation on the radiology, but they have mild symptoms and a very good quality of life. At that point, there is no need for them to come here for further invasive testing. Ends up there and say, okay, bye-bye, right. uh, and uh, in two years, do another MRI and touch base with me. But on the other right. hand, you have somebody with invasive cervical, sorry, with the craniocervical instability, severe compromise to quality of life. At that point, the plan is going to be, if you're interested to go further, come here, we're going to do the invasive testing, and that they, you know, they, uh, we kick it up a couple of notches. Okay, so so once they get that second opinion report, and if you feel that they need to come and see you um, because they are clinically very symptomatic and their data is just shows... going to be directly for invasive testing in right. the hospital setting. So it's not going to be like I see you in the office and you're going to come back. You just come here. We do and, right. Uh, and it's not only the basic traction. For example, some people have suspicion of disorder of the intracranial pressure. We're going to do a intracranial pressure monitor with positional testing. Or there is a problem with the glossopharyngeal nerve. We're going to do glossopharyngeal block. Or there is a suspicion of neurogenic bladder. We're going to do urodynamics. So the, the, again, this is uh, you... Since we we are more aggressive with the with our toolkit, uh, the 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 onus of the the responsibility of the diagnosis has to go on a on, on a stronger and more objective level. So invasive testing is kind of a the highest level of uh, of standard the diagnostic standard we can apply. So that reminds me about one condition that you treat and you treat it very well called Eagle syndrome. Can you mm -hmm. tell our listeners what are the symptoms of Eagle syndrome? Huh. All right. Uh, there, there is a bone at the base of the skull which is converging from below the ears, which is converging towards the voice box and is called the styloid process. And uh, usually a a small and thin piece of bone, and it is the attachment for a number of, for about three uh, tendons, which are attached to muscles which go to the voice box, and you know they're helpful with a number of uh, a number of movements that we routinely do. The Eagle syndrome is when you this bone becomes very big, very cumbersome, very long. And in doing that creates a number of different things. In the past, it was called Eagle syndrome only when it was poking the trachea and, and or the esophagus. All right, that was called the... Then they, they, they found out that sometimes other vessels can... Vessels passing by, like the jugular or the carotid, can be impinged. So that was called the vascular eagle. Then... I was, uh, you know, I was very excited because, oh, yeah, these patients, they have, um, they have a lot of symptoms. We come from the glossopharyngeal nerve, so I was ready to publish it when finally the ENT figured it out after years that they were debating it. And so they kind of beat me to the punch. But 
there are a number of cranial nerves passing by that get uh, stretched, pushed, or nudged by these by these bones simply because they are in the right place. And so this bone, when this bone is bigger, is kind of uh, pushing and shoving. Now, like everything which is related to EDS, uh, people with EDS style that, that like the princess and the pea, uh, they're super sensitive for everything. So the majority of the people, they really don't care that they have a style which is a little bit bigger or a little bit thicker. Yeah, so uh, the majority, the longest series about eagle, they're actually coming from the Indian subcontinent because for some kind of reasons over there, the the styloids are enormous when they when they are pathologic. Indian, like, uh, yeah, really, the, the the largest series that come from there. Oh, the largest series. Yeah, the largest game also because you have one point what the three billion people. <laughs> but but they're really phenomenally big. So there is there is also a kind of a genetic uh, component to that. People with EDS they have a different thing. The uh, like I said before, the clinical presentation is mostly uh, affecting uh, mostly function of the glossopharyngeal nerve. The first tract of the uh, of the styloid. So if it becomes thicker and just passes by, that's the little of extra stretch. In our very touchy-feely EDS people, they, it's enough to create trouble. And now comes the issue because the glossopharyngeal nerve is very complex. And if I tell somebody, okay, you know, I go to the doctor and say, okay, I have palpitations and I have a ringing in the ear and I have a uh, sensation of metal taste in my mouth. This guy's going to say, you're freaking crazy. And instead, those things come from three branches of the same nerve, the glossopharyngeal nerve. So if you understand, if you remember medical school and neuroanatomy, that's, that's easy. Right. Apparently, my ENT's colleagues, <laughs> they, it took them a while to figure that out. Um, so what you do is this. Like... Um, is the same principle when you go to the dentist and you have a you know, big problem with your tooth and the dentist gives the local and you feel you feel better. So if the glossopharyngeal nerve is uh, is crying uncle by because it's pushed by the the styloid, you just inject some local anesthetic in the neighborhood, and if the the symptoms calm down, that means they're linked to the glossopharyngeal and therefore they're linked to, the, is because the, the glossopharyngeal is getting kicked around by this bone. Um, now comes the, the tricky part. Um, I remember that the, the, the association between Chiari and uh, styloid, hypertrophic styloids, and EDS and hypertrophic style, we figured out a long time ago. That was not the issue. And since we were not trained as neurosurgeons to do this case, these cases, like we're trained about other things, we're sending these patients a few in between to the uh, ENTs. And I remember that one time uh, I sent a patient to an ENT with my, my health system and uh, like several hospitals ago. And this patient was 2005. The patient came back in a, a tracheostomy and a gastrostomy too. Oh, yeah, I know. And Ooh. 
obviously at that point we became you know more prudent about saying it because I thought okay this is a dangerous surgery I did not know about you know the like I, all right the, before I send another one I'm going to wait for somebody to be uh, at least as sick as this one if not more so we sat on a on hundreds of these patients over the years Chiari and EDS until one day as all right there was this patient was really having a big styloid and severe EDS and a cranial cervical fusion Actually, there were two at the same time, and we booked them something like if in two consecutive days, and they knew each other, and they were calling themselves like the like the um, from Doctor Seuss, they're calling themselves Thing One and Thing Two, like, <laughs> whatever. Uh, and so it, it, they were having they were having craniosurgical fusions, so that was raising some prompts about the intubation. So I said, all right. I'm going to do it myself. I don't want to send it somewhere else. So I go to the library and, I, you know, the days before, and I go through textbooks of uh, head and neck surgery, again, different specialty. And I go through all that, whatever, and take my notes to the operating room that day. And I start. Step one, you you put the patient on the table. Step two, you turn the, you turn the, you can't turn anything because the patient was fused. So at that point, I threw the notes away, and I realized that the surgery had to be done completely different. So a large patient population of the with Eagle, they had EDS and former fusions. That creates an enormous technical problem uh, because it is like you're trying to change the an engine in a car, but you open the hood just like this. Right. And... Not only, but most of the dissection, instead of doing with tools, I do it underneath the mandible blind with my finger, and then I dislocate the thing, and they, you can go on. So uh, practically, we had to adapt the surgery to the circumstances with maneuvers that were not in the book. And uh, other thing that I realized afterwards is, by that point, I already had you know number of years of experience with EDS patients, so I knew that they were not tolerating a lot of uh, uh, dissection nonsense. So I realized what happened to the ENT in the past. The ENT did the surgery like the ENTs do, using the bovie knife, which is the electrocautery, right. uh, the fire stick, we call it in jargon. And the, you cannot do that around nerve, nerves in general. But nerves of an EDS, that's a case of that. So at that point, once I pass the skin, I don't use any cautery at all. Mm. So it's all blunt dissection and nothing else. Makes sense. So, you know, so it was, so far it has worked, whatever, but um, that, that doesn't mean that it's never going to, complications are never going to happen. But that's an example about how to adapt the uh, how to adapt the technique to a specific subset of patients that are kind of strange and different. About the diagnostics is, okay, you know, we know the problem. Now, it's obvious when everything is normal, it's obviously when everything is like textbook enormous. And the, the finesse is where do you, where in the shades of gray you draw the line. So right now the thing is we do a 3D CT angiogram because it shows us the the seat, the um, the structure, the length and thickness of the styloid uh, is has to be a CT angiogram because then we see how the 
uh, especially the Jaguar passes by in the Vertir and the Carotid passes by and how they're affected in 3D. And then we do a glossopharyngeal test. But again, before we get to that level, there is clinical. We have a series of uh, all the symptoms which are linked to the glossopharyngeal nerve. Check, check, check. Then, then there is the provocative test. You push here and the patient sucks. Oh, my goodness. Or yes. you put inside the mouth and they jump. That means that that nerve yes. is hurting. The same way you do, do this to a, to, a, to a tooth with decay. The third one is the um, uh, the third one is the the history. So you know the patient had um, progressively those symptoms got worse and blah blah. Very often happens after a tooth extraction or other things. So there are certain kind of um, certain kind of patterns we keep seeing. Then there is the fourth, which is the radiological part, the tear for once is self-explanatory. Uh, and then the fifth, which is the glossopharyngeal block for the for the provocative test, invasive. And if whatever symptoms improves, at that point we can link him for sure to the gloss to the glossopharyngeal uh, nerve, and we can go ahead in chopping up that that the, the thing. Now the we do one at a time and separated by two months. So in case there is a problem or a complication, you're not going to have you know, somebody with tracheostomy right. in the peg again like it happened to that colleague of mine. Right. So, my, my, <clears throat> so we talked about craniocervical instability. We talked about Eagle syndrome. Um, we also want to talk to your other expertise is in Chiari malformation. And, you know, you mentioned cranial settling. And to my understanding is that cranial settling is a very big issue in this population. Now, in my understanding, so the, in, in terms of cranials, I'm sorry, how would you want your patients, what kind of uh, imaging do you want in patients for carry malformations to show, like, can we do a supine MRI? Can do we need an upright MRI? Okay, first of all, a cranial settling is an, an old-timey term uh, for what, in a simpler way, is the vertical dimension of craniocervical instability. So you can have a rotational component. You can have an anterior-posterior component, like, for example, C12 instability pure. Uh, the rotational component would be the bow hunter syndrome in which people do like this and the vertebra gets choked. And then there is the vertical. Going back to the morphometrics, basal dense interval. The normal dimension, the normal distance between the base of the skull and the top of C2 should be between four and five millimeters in supine. And when you go sitting, you should just settle by a millimeter, millimeter and a half tops. If you extract the head like this, should go up one millimeter and a half tops. Right. So that is the normal range. Now, people with EDS, if they are hypermobile, they can have much more than that. Without symptoms, that's hypermobility. But if they become sick because of it, that point becomes instability. Hypermobility plus symptoms equal instability. So you have the sense that something is wrong. 
when in the supine position on a high definition MRI, the BDI is two or three millimeters. That's already an indication that maybe that patient has uh, has cranial settling, vertical instability. The second thing is that when we do the traction, we pull up, if you have a movement, a difference between off traction and on traction or two millimeters or more, that's a, that's vertical instability, a cranial settling. That's actually one of the surgical qualification criteria. And so cranial settling can happen in many different things. Traditionally in, uh, in neurosurgery is described in pathologies which destroy the joint, like inflammatory things like um, rheumatoid arthritis or tumors uh, in the area, or traumas which, you know, vertical traumas which break down the condyles. So that's a cranial, classical cranial setting. But our patient, uh, the viscosity of the joint is totally altered. So the, uh, it is like um, you have a cylinder inside, um, um, you have a piston inside the cylinder. You know, they go up and down, but there is oil, and they do not go from one to the other. All of a sudden, you see the boom, falls right. down, okay? And then if he, if you made, if you had the explosion, poof, it goes up, it goes out to the wood, out to the hood of the, of the, of the car, and it jumps in the street. That is abnormal, okay? It collapses too much right. and expands too much. So that is cranial cervical instability in, in, in car terms. Um, now... Different doctors have their own things. Uh, generally, what I start with is the MRI in supine of three Tesla at least, but three Tesla is fine. Uh, 1.5 is acceptable, but three the, nowadays is very easy to be found anywhere. Supine position, nothing else. Because we have the best definition of the joint. Once you start going for a Upright MRI. Upright MRIs, by definition, have a um, very small magnet, which is 0.5. Um, the upper, I know actually know very well the guy who invented the upright MRI was one of the very first inventors of the MRI principle. And uh, actually lives nearby here, and he was together with us in, the, in our old university. But the story is, although it's a very good and helpful thing, you don't have a good picture. And all of a sudden, all those morphometric measurements, the execution of which rely on crisp definition of bone versus ligament, gets blurred out, number one. Number two is if you send somebody and do the flexion and extension, it is not standardized. Because if that day there is Mr. Smith, the technician, who is nervous about doing it, is going to say, okay, move a little bit, move a little bit, I'm nervous because you're sick. Mm-hmm. Other times, if you can have a flexion, there are two different kinds of flexion. If you have a flexion <coughs> like this, the stress of the flexion is in the lower part of the cervical spine. Okay? Mm-hmm. If right. I do like this, the stress is on the higher part of the cervical spine all the way to the junction. So you can have two people doing a major effort, but stressing two different parts of the 
of the spine simply because the technician is used to that. The majority of technicians who do MRI flex X are to test degenerative joint disease in the mid-lower cervical spine. So, you know, already something strange. But the thing which is uh, the most absurd but then you think about it, it makes sense, is if you have somebody who's hypermobile uh, from EDS but zero symptoms, they're going to give you these scary contortionist levels of flexion and extension, especially in extension. They're absurd, but they can do it because they have zero symptoms. On the other end, the patient on the opposite side of the spectrum who's super sick, you would rather get shot than move even just a little bit. So all of a sudden, you what is this upright flex X MRI? Even if we get standardized, gets you. I know. Uh, becomes helpful from so if as a screening is not that great, it, it has all these pitfalls. But for specific things, can be helpful. For example, you have. Uh, you want to test if there is a gliding, an excessive gliding between two and three and one and two. Fine. At that point, you have a specific thing and you use that as a, a, like as a sniper rifle. But there's a, as a screening tool, you know, also realistically, the MRI is not going to authorize 500 tests, especially 500 MRIs. So if they authorize one MRI at the cervical spine, and then these patients very often need an MRI at the lumbar, and sometimes they have problems inside the head. You know, before you know it, they have the MRI lumbar and cervical for sure. You also had the MRI flex X in an MRI upright. They're going to tell you, pick one. And if you pick up an MRI upright, that point you're going to have a crappy MRI of the cervical spine of the area that you really want to see with data that are not really going to be standardized. So that's why I start with the MRI cervical supine high definition. Because I can always order the other one later in small amounts for a specific subset of problems. But if you use it as a screening, you shoot yourself in the foot. So because then if you really need a good picture, you have to wait until the, um, until the insurance tells you yes. So for patients with carry malformation, what kind of imaging do you want to see? Yeah, that's okay. Um, in the past, people were saying, okay, I'm going to get an MRI of the brain because of the disease of the brain. That's actually, if you have one shot and one MRI, that's not the best MRI to do. Yes. Best MRI to do is an MRI supine high definition of the cervical spine. Because MRI of the cervical spine, classically done, shows you the entire posterior fossa and the entire cervical spine. And about... Uh, 50% of the carry formation have an associated sphingomyelia cavity. So that get that single test puts you ahead of the game already. So um, so that that is that's a good way to start. Then obviously you you want um, once you have that screening, you pass it to a neurosurgeon, and they're gonna do other things, etc. Like in the past, I remember when. Uh, first came out in the late 90s. There was seen MRI. First came out, we were excited. Oh, fine, we're going to see the cerebrospinal fluid flow. Fast forward 10 years, and all the experts, while the other people were speaking it up, all the experts dropped it because they were saying, 
The CNMRI, the vast majority of the, of the times, doesn't tell me something I do not know already. If I have a patient with this visible herniation and the patient is sick like a dog and the symptoms are coming from there, guess what? 90 plus times, I'm going to do the CNMRI, is going to show me that there is some blockage posteriorly. Big, big damn surprise, I already knew before. Right. On the other hand, the CNMRI can be helpful if you have an herniation that is not particularly, you know, vertically is not that deep. There is a discrepancy between the symptoms, which are Chiari-like and very strong, and the appearance of the MRI that looks a little bit, not vanilla, but less than what you would expect. At that point, you use the CNMRI as a tiebreaker. So, so on a so my so from what I understand is that you're looking for a high definition three Tesla supine MRI of the yeah. neck. Oh, one point five. One point five is acceptable. Yeah. In cases of Chiari malformation, which is the same image that I need for to uh, to investigate craniocervical instability. Right. So exactly. every, everything wrong from here to here, MRI cervical supine. 3.0. Now, no a, lot of, a lot of these patients with Chiari malformation also present with uh, intracranial hypertension. Yeah. Now, that, that's a good... <laughs> that's a classic thing of the chicken and the egg. Uh, first right. of all, we, we had to talk about semantics. And there are a lot of actually people in the field that they're very loose with the semantics and they create confusion for themselves and for the patients. Um, so the thing out there is that uh, many, many people, and wrongly so, they see the cerebellar tonsils coming, out of the, coming down and out of the skull where they belong inside the skull, and they say, that's a carry-on formation. That's bullshit. Okay? The herniation of the tonsil is just the anatomical effect of 18 different mechanisms, which can be summarized in four. I can push the tonsils out of the skull. I can squeeze the tonsils out of the skull. I can pull them down from below, or they can dangle like the cheeks of a bulldog. Okay, so the classic Yarimama formation is the purest, is the, the tonsillar herniation caused by a volumetrically small posterior fossa. It's like squeezing a zit. The posterior fossa is a craniosynostosis of the posterior fossa, the Chiariwama formation, and the herniation of the tonsils is its effect. So it's the disorder of the skull, which is squeezing out the brain. Mm, right. So squeeze is Chiari. There is also another... You know, you can have syndromic chiaris, you can have uh, other forms of craniosynostosis, you can have a pinhead, obviously, you know, is going to come down. Then you can push. If you have a tumor in the posterior fossa, it's going to push all the way along, including the tonsils for the path of least resistance outside of the hole, which is the bottom of the skull. Big hole in Latin means forame magnum. So you push them down simply because the, the posterior fossa, the skull over here, is normal in size but there is a big fat guy who's pushing you around. Right. So we have the squeeze and we have the push. We have something pulling down. Like if you have severe forms of tether cord, like you can have a carry tumor formation, et cetera, or also 
tight following terminality is very tight, can displace the tonsils downwards in different degrees. So Chiari tumor formation, lipomyelomeningocils can actually pull the spinal cord down to the pelvis, to the, to the sacrum, at a very young age, and then the brain, a lot, not only the tonsils, but a part of the cerebellum, leave the skull and go into the spine. And other times, people with tight phalon terminale, they can actually have a minimal displacement. Now comes the confusion. There are a lot of, some of my colleagues to make, uh, think even more complicated call, Chiari zero, Chiari 0 0.5, Chiari 0, 0.75, for God's sake. Then there are the five millimeter rule, which was decided by neuroradiologists who never seen patients, who couldn't know if the patient had symptoms or not. He decided the Chiari malformation was just with the tonsil with five millimeter or more. But if 4.75 was no Chiari, what kind of bullshit is that? So well, so practically you can pull them down because if you pull down the spinal cord and the brainstem, the brainstem is attached with three prongs. So the cerebellum is attached to three prongs to the brainstem and again, it comes down, the first piece of the cerebellum coming down are the tonsils. So we have push, squeeze, and pull, and there is the dangle. You know, people with EDS, <laughs> saggy things, saggy here, saggy there, the uterine prolapse, you know, so it's not a surprise that something can also sag. Now, the gravity of the nervous system is not gravity for the all the rest because the nervous system is bathing in cerebrospinal fluid, so there is this kind of thing which is buoyant, but is more like the boat, which is uh, more to the dock. So you're not a boat in the middle of the ocean. You're more to the dock, and you know, you'll be right there, and somebody would see it with... With DDS, you're expecting some degree of, of sagging. The typical tonsil should be three millimeters above the foramen magnum. But, you know, you have one nose, I have a bigger nose, she has a different cuter nose, you know, like so comes for the tonsil. So there is a, it's not that everybody's three millimeter. And if you are, some people, they are above somebody below. So there is a spectrum. And unfortunately, this spectrum of normal overlaps slightly with the spectrum of abnormal. So, you know, but if we, without without going for another half an hour on on this thing, <laughs> that's why there are the experts out there. But unfortunately, a lot of the confusion comes from the fact that when you start calling Chiari, everything, regardless of the cause, you're creating confusion. So Chiari actually started being uh, described by this guy who was a pathologist and uh, was actually... In, Geographically, was Italian, but at the time, uh, he was living in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, and he was the pathologist in Prague. And you know, back then, what was the major pathology for the uh, for you know for the end of the nineteenth century? TB, tuberculosis. So he was doing he was doing autopsies on people with TB. These people were having a hydrocephalus secondary to TB infection, and that was a the first. Herniation you saw was actually the push level, the, level the hydro was pushing things down. Then he started seeing afterwards, and but he was doing a, um, it was a pathology based and an anatomically based description. Then afterwards became an MRI based description, but the best ground to stand is a 
pathophysiology, a mechanism base. Because if you understand the mechanism, understanding what you have to do to fix it is easy. So if somebody has a carrier malformation because it's a deviation from the squeeze, you have to do a carrier surgery. But if it is coming from a push, at that point you're barking up the wrong tree. Which brings me to the uh, one of the questions that I didn't answer before, which was the intracranial hypertension. That's a chicken and the egg situation. In some cases, you can have the squeeze level, herniation going down, that's typical carry, with mild elevated of mild elevation of the pressure, which normalizes after the decompression. Bingo, end. On the opposite end, you can have a patient with pseudotumor cerebra, in which the pressure inside the head is very high uniformly, the skull in the back is normal in shape, and that's a push situation. So the pseudotumor is right. causing the herniation. Fine, there are some anatomical details which are <clears throat> different, but that's the principle. And then there are situations in which you have both. You have the carry, you do the decompression, the patient still has high pressure if you do an intercranial pressure monitoring. So in this way, the patient has one plus one makes three situation. So in order to, again, pathophysiology, you need to treat both for the patient to have, uh, to have, to have a full recovery. So in the past, work was called pseudotumor because it was, they didn't have CAT scans and the people were opening uh, the skull of people looking for a tumor and there was none. And then it was thought that it was a cerebrospinal fluid disorder because you were doing the lumbar puncture and CSF was spraying out of the, the needle. Then it was understood afterwards that the problem was not the CSF, the problem was not nothing else, it was tumor. The problem was a swollen brain, but the swollen brain from what? Fast forward several years, it was swollen brain because right. what the venous circulation was choked up, which is easy because I choked myself like this. Right. My face is going to become purple, imagine to the brain, which has a lot more of dealing with a lot more of blood flow. And there are only two ways out, which are the two jugular veins. So fast forward to last year and to actually to a few years ago, and uh, pretty much at the same time, Dr. Higgins from Cambridge and uh, myself and, and another guy, we kind of stumbled on a number of patients. I was coming from a different direction. I was looking at styloids. And next to the styloid was the tubercle, the, uh, the tubercle of C1. And I was very often I was seeing the jaguar sandwich between the two. So I was looking, I was removing the styloid. And then sometimes I was seeing the jugular re-expanding and the pressure normalizing. I said, wow, that's great. On the other hand, Higgins at Cambridge was looking in a different direction. He was looking at C1. And he was seeing this C1 like a starfish around the rock doing like this around the peduncle and uh, the tubercle. So long story short, coming from different direction, we hit the same thing with the compression of the jugular. Uh, either in a sandwich or unilaterally at the level of C1. And then we started noticing other things. People with EDS, especially EDS with uh, cranial settling, imagine that you have a, a burger, okay? And you push it like this. What does the burger do? 
So patients with EDS very often, their ring of C1 in chronic settling becomes wider. And in becoming wider, the peduncle, which are like, imagine that I am like this and I keep my, my elbows. My elbows are going to go more out and they're going to go towards the jugular. By doing that creates, a, it is the equivalent of me putting my foot over a garden hose and creates a venous congestion inside the brain and the pressure goes up. So last year I started, you know, shaving since I'm there for other reasons, like I'm there for Chiari or I'm there for fusions. I just go a little bit more lateral and I can reach those bones and I cut them. All of a sudden, patients that were problem patients for a while for me and I, I put the shunt to that and I put another shunt three months later, keeps failing. All of a sudden, the pressure normalizes and I felt stupid. <laughs> there was one patient, uh, one of the, you know, again, one, one of those, uh, the sheep who got, got lost. There was this patient uh, who was suicidal when we first met her in 2001 because she was having a uh, extremely loud uh, tinnitus. Actually, she had two tinnitus at the same time. One was high pitch, one uh, was a sort of a machinery low pitch. Constant, she couldn't sleep. It was like it was like living in a in a factory constantly. And she was, you know, she was ready to to put an end to her life. And she came with the lumbar puncture. Pressure was very high. The symptoms improved to the point it was tolerable, so we put the shunt. And pseudotumor, the, the ventricles are very small, so the failure rate is very high. So we were doing something like one shunt every year. She was, and then we tried different shunt configuration, different shunt valves, the technology got better, but the headache was better, the, the, the ringing was better, but was never zero. And then, you know, after she was one of the first patients that I chopped those tubercles in the ring for the first time in her entire life was gone. Wow. It took me 24 years. So... No, 22. <coughs> now, you, well, you kind of feel stupid afterwards. So you say, like, it was there, like, why I didn't know this before. But again, you do not know what you do not know. Exactly. And you thought about it. So that brings me to one more question. And... I don't know, Dr. Bluestein, do we still have time? So why don't you ask your question, then I have a question, and then we'll wrap up. Okay. Um, we have a subset of patients with EDS that start to have dizziness when they turn their head to one side. What is that? All right. And <laughs> that's another <laughs> good thing, because there were some things I did not know either. Um one of the one is easy to find, and uh, one is called the bow hunter syndrome. Bow hunter because you you are a hunter, you use the bow. Anyway, and the the two vertebral arteries pass inside C one, and they're passing inside a hole, and then they also pass inside a hole at the level of C two. The bow hunter syndrome because of the hypermobility or and or the configuration of C two because it all depends how much redundant. You know, if C2 in between the two holes has a lot of slack and you rotate a lot, the slack can tolerate for a while. But if you don't have a lot of slack, 
and you overturn, at that point you're going to create a kink in the in the tubing. Let me just show you something like this. It's like like this. You rotate, and all of a sudden the rotating gets like this. Or imagine that he's super tense. The moment he gets super tense, at the level of the two holes, create a kink, create a, a, a stenosis, and that uh, causes hypoperfusion from the vertebral artery. What's the correction? The only thing you have to do is just to tell, you know, uh, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Don't do it anymore. So you just fuse C1 and C2. So the relative uh, architecture of the two preserves the integrity of the vertebral. Okay. So that is one. Then there are some other patients that uh, remember the styloid, etc. that in their three-dimensional arrangement can actually kink most of the times the styloids when they're hypertrophic, they're bilateral, uh, they can actually choke both jaggers. At that point, choking both jaggers create a intermittent pseudotumor. Okay? Uh, then there are some other patients that when they, uh, when they turn, they can have uh, a more complex uh, structure in which some different cranial nerves are involved. And at that point, you can have the 10th or the 10th the and 9th, they're functionally connected. So you can use one as a kind of a vector for the other, but that's a different story. But you can have not the artery, not the vein, but the cranial nerves yeah. being okay. affected. But okay. at the end, is a st stupid thing. It is something mechanic that is affecting something else. And, and that leads me to a, uh, my question, which was, Hopefully people by now are, are realizing that there's a lot that happens in the neck, the base of the brain. And so these workups are very, very complex. And I think in the beginning when you were explaining about patient selection and invasive cervical traction and how important that is, I think most people don't realize that you don't want to have a surgery that you don't need. Like, like I think some people think, oh, that seems like an easy fix. Or if that's the definitive fix for CCI, for example, don't I mm -hmm. want that? Don't I want the definitive fix? But as you're describing all of these other things that can look kind of similar, um, a lot of people I imagine are thinking, oh my gosh, I don't think anyone's ever worked me up for, you know, Eagle syndrome or bow hunter, or, you know, any of these other things. Do you have any suggestions for people who, again, as Dr. Chopra pointed out, people that are listening to this are literally all over the world actually. And they might be listening and saying, gosh, I wish I could, schedule an appointment with Dr. Bolognese or to get a screening of some sort with some of his team. But for people that can't even do that, um, do you have any suggestions for how they can try to get an appropriate workup? You were describing multiple different ways that people can have something that looks like Chiari, but actually only one of them actually is Chiari, right? So um, those details and, are so important. Yeah, the key, the, the key is to find somebody locally, like, like you, you know, like the uh, the, the quote unquote, um, you know, EDS specialist or concierge EDS specialist or aficionado or the or the EDS bodega, whatever you whatever you want to call it. Uh, it. It doesn't matter because it doesn't really matter if you are a neurosurgeon, a pain specialist, or uh, a pediatric cardiologist, or whatever. There are so many of ours that. Uh, 
or physiatrists, etc. It, it doesn't really matter because then at the end we kind of have a major overlap of, uh, of diagnosis, etc. So the, the important thing is to find somebody local. So the uh, in the United States is absolutely not a problem because um, if it is true that 20 years ago there were not so not so much. Right now, there is a not only a raise awareness, but a lot of people going into the field, and that's very good. The risk for some of my neurosurgical colleagues, if there is a neurosurgeon looking and whatever, uh, I, I would tell them, think twice about getting into EDS because it's not that easy. And if you get into it, go slow in the beginning for a while before going, don't make the mistake of, pushing the pedal from the beginning, otherwise you're going to, you know, at least um, at least in the beginning we didn't have anybody to ask, but at least ask somebody who has more experience <clears throat> before you commit with a large volume of patients, because then otherwise you're going to have the X on the face and then uh, you're going you're gonna to just leave and quit. So it's, it's, it's a better strategy for a neurosurgeon who has more, uh, more things at stake and, and forms of treatment which are more impactful right. to go slow, f- to have a long period of adolescence. The, the real problem is in the other countries, but the good news is that in the other countries, uh, things are changing. Uh, it, the United Kingdom has decided in March of this year to uh, create three multidisciplinary centers for neuro-EDS. And that was one of the bastions of skepticism worldwide. Uh, Australia has one, uh, Italy has a, a couple of centers of neuro-EDS diagnostic and they're starting exploring into that. Um, Spain has a couple of specialists who are dealing with that. Holland, they started and they stopped and probably they're going to restart again. So you, you cannot put everybody, you know, you cannot expect that somebody who's just starting is going to have the same kind of results as somebody who's been 10 or 20 years in the field or whatever, but uh, we're not anymore the way we were 20 years ago. So it, I'm very, very optimistic. But um, finding somebody with a good reputation is uh, is very, very important. And I would always start, right now there is a, the advantage of people like you guys around. I always start from a primary care neuro-EDS physician before committing in, because yeah. people like like you guys are going to be like the quarterback. Like a neuro-EDS is going to need, you know, at a certain point is going to need a SMAS procedure or is going to need a, a kidney transposition because of a, a May Turner or is going to need, you know, other, you know, an orthopedic, repair done at Harvard by my friend who does ligamental reconstruction, uh, or they need a TMJ procedure done in Indiana. So people like you know who the players are, where to send them, and they are the playback. We are just, they, 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 they are the, you know, the, what's his name? Uh, the quarterback, you know, we have, I'm just a wide receiver, you know, one of the many. Okay, very good. So, too yeah. skinny to be a skinny. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I always like to um, end with uh, hypermobility hacks. This is something that started with Dr. Chopra. He was coming up with all of these different hacks. And I thought, that's really great. So 
Um, do you have any hypermobility hacks to share with our listeners? The going to fundamental is, uh, okay, the first hack is, it's a negative one, not a positive one. That's okay. <laughs> and uh, it is actually a warning. I understand the enthusiasm and actually I'm, I'm probably partially responsible because in the past we did a lot of um, educational videos and, uh, you know, to make, to make the patients more educated. But sometimes things get out of, uh, out of hand. So I see a lot of people are here, a lot of patients, you know, playing morphometrics on each other, playing doctor on each other, yes. uh, or rendering opinion on the ground for this and that. This is kind of, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm super smart and whatever, nobody else will deal with that. No, that would be stupid. Especially because if I look back, things that I, uh, things I did not know 10 years ago, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling at now. But, um, it's very dangerous to play. If it is very dangerous to play doctor for for other for any kind of pathology, this is a kind of a field that is very complicated. So even it's difficult for us to to do uh, a nuanced diagnosis and a certain degree. And for sure, the patients are not even if they know more about neuroads than the average primary care physician. The, find at home, mm -hmm. indeed, out of all the time that they have, while well, EDS from its standard training is a footnote of one page of the uh, internal medicine manual. But that said, they should not do it because they're just giving each other a disservice. Second thing is, which, why is a major no-no? Right now, we are finally coming off the, you know, uh, to the peak of being able to convince a larger doctor community that these patients are legit and this subdiscipline is legit. So if we have a bunch of patients playing loose, they're gonna give the entire cause a bad name to either critics who are critics in good faith or critics who are just looking for some you know easy target to shoot and say, you see, I told you this is a bunch mm -hmm. of bullshit. Mm -hmm. So they, this is my negative thing about the um, the positive hack. I would recommend, you know, is the the principle of, of kicking the tire. Uh, if you have a suspicion about something, just kick the tire. So if you think that you have an instability, put yourself in traction, put yourself in a car, even if the two things are not equivalent, and the important thing is not to do it once because you could have uh, something like um, there is the placebo effect. Placebo effect, you, you do it and you really want to do something and to see this. It is like marrying somebody and you're infatuated. Guess what? After 20 years, if that person is really not right, the, the placebo effect goes away. After 20 years, it's no longer there. So before jumping to conclusion after one test, or non-invasive test self-administered, just check if the results are consistent. And then at that point, get the yellow flag up and look for... Otherwise, you know, right now, yes, there are people dealing with neuroids like us, but we're not that many. So we don't, we don't, it is against the public interest to flood, uh, to flood the 
resources which are around with with things that if just the patient had tested three more times, at least you know would have found that maybe it was not that hot that result. So provocative testing and repetition, they are a lot of the things. Uh, the mark of shame uh, of that guy is just neurotic because look at this. The, the history is long like this. How can it be? Even if he's legit, even if he's specialist would appreciate the nuances. It other negative hack is. Uh, do not use the term migraine. Mm. Migraine is a specific yes. diagnosis, yes. which means that you just have visual flushing followed by headache, just with head pain just in one side of the head, and you have to go in a dark room for three days and react just to a specific set of medications. That's it. That's migraine. Don't call migraine everything else. Otherwise, number one, you create confusion on a doctor because the doctor will just have, is writing, you know, my primary physician has five minutes to see you. He's just going to write in your medical report that you have migraine while that is not a diagnosis. Telling you have a headache and where the headache is and how many times it happens, what makes it worse and what makes it better. Those are probably the most important things. Yes. Because that gives... They diagnose away before you even even see the MRI. Like one of the exercises I do with my with with the, uh, with my team is, we read the questionnaire, the history, and the provocative test without seeing any MRI or any former diagnosis yes. specialist, and on the grounds of three things only, which is old school medicine, nineteenth century, we call the diagnosis. That is good. And, you know, like, so, so no more damn migraine diagnosis. Otherwise, they're just going to confuse people. Right. Yes. And so, then also to have a healthy sense of skepticism, say, not to fall in love with things, but to keep a balance. Or say, okay, doubt yourself before you just go zero to 100. Correct. But because if it is true, it's going to be true anyway at the end. Just... Just be, repeat the test, repeat the test, repeat the test, and no, don't jump to conclusion after one. If after ten, repeat the following day and another ten. If it is all, if it is the right thing, guess what? Nineteen out of twenty are going to be positive. So, as we try to wind up, I have a <laughs> tiny little hack. I'm sorry, I'm addicted to hacks. So, <laughs> it is a very small hack. A lot of times, patients with uh, craniocervical instability have difficulty sleeping because when they sleep and they turn sides, then it wakes them up. And so they they can't sleep. Uh, what I recommend is using one of the inflatable airline pillows that you put around your neck and you can sleep with that on. And so that prevents your head from rolling when you go to sleep. Good. So I'm going to add one, which is a positive hack since I've been so negativistic so far. People with headache, high pressure headache, which is gets worse when you cough, sneeze, or strain. Yes. Very often they sleep on three or four pillows, which is good in the beginning of the night. And then but they wake up and they're like this because the pile of pillows falls down. So the best thing to do is not to use pillows, but to use a wedge 
underneath, no, not so many people can afford the bed doing like this, but just to get the big wedge, which can be like a, you know, can be just wood underneath the mattress, or it can be a bunch of uh, softer material, cut you a wedge, put you underneath the head of the, the head of the mattress, and that's going to give you a good thing, which is going to be more effective than a bunch of pillows that. All right. So you get the award for the hack of the day. <laughs> and with this, with this uh, we are so appreciative that this has been one of the best podcasts I've ever seen and it was so valuable and we thank you I know you had a long day in the operating room today and it is late for all of us Dr. Bolanis and I can't tell you how appreciative we all are and I'm sure our learners, our, our listeners are going to be very, very, um, because I always say knowledge is power. And in this field where <clears throat> there are so few physicians who understand this, uh, this information is, is gold. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for coming. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the Bendy Bodies podcast and sharing your knowledge with us. We. Thank we you for are having me. Very appreciative of that. <laughs> yes, yes, we are so grateful. This is such an important conversation and one that I think so many people are going to benefit from. So we really appreciate it. You're going to add subtitles, obviously. And and thank you so much to Dr. Chopra for being the most amazing guest co-host. So really appreciate <laughs> oh, it. Oh, thank you, <laughs> the, the, Dr. Chopra. When I met him. I couldn't believe it because it was years that I was trying to explain to my fellow neurosurgeons about all this. And all of a sudden I met him and he, under, he had understood it by that time, which was several years ago, better than all the guys that I was preaching to for years and years. And I, wow. it, like after a little while, he was better than them. Wow. And I was like, how is it possible? <laughs> like, he's not a neurosurgeon because obviously I was very like elitist, etc. And, and then I realized that he was just unique. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible because really? a lot of people probably don't realize that the neurosurgical, typical neurosurgical residency in the United States is seven years, right? And that's after four years of medical school and um, college, four years of medical school, and then a seven-year residency. Is that, is that yeah, still I did, true? I did it twice, so I finished at 41. Yeah. 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 Wow. At age 41, I finished. So like, um, Somebody says they did it twice because I was not that smart. Goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, th well, thank you so much to both of you. I'm so incredibly grateful that we got to have this conversation, and I know so many people will appreciate it. And, yes, um, I will also put this in the show notes, but definitely I will encourage people to watch this on YouTube where they can see the subtitles. We will be having the transcript also available so they can read along and be able to find search for the specific things they want and they can look at that specific timeline and, and everything. So uh, well, we, right. since we're talking about a questionnaire, etc., and since my questionnaire is an open source, I'm going to send you the, um, the form that we use, oh, not only for amazing. the patients to see, but also very important for any practitioner who wants to, use it or copy paste or copy paste modified. This is like for everybody to uh, benefit from what we have learned over 20 plus years. So it is, so they, it's kind of, yes. they start from what, where we handed. That is, is 
Incredibly generous. Thank you so much. That mm-hmm. is really, really generous. And we will link that so people can access it. And that's, that's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. So you're sharing your knowledge and resources, which is phenomenal. So thank you so much. And we'll see you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bendy Bodies with a Hypermobility MD podcast. Visit our new website at bendybodiespodcast.com, where you can now view guest profiles and show notes with links to products and journal articles. Leave me a comment, sign up for updates, leave a review or a voicemail, and access the podcast on your favorite player all directly from our website. You may hear your voicemail in a future episode where we answer your question or dive into your gracious feedback. Follow us on Instagram at bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories. So be a buddy and engage our community by using the hashtag bendy buddy. That's hashtag B-E-N-D-Y-B-U-D-D-Y. You can also find me, Dr. Linda Bluestein, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn at HypermobilityMD. Visit HypermobilityMD.com for information about medical services and one-on-one coaching. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. Do not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you have. Opinions shared are that of the guest and do not necessarily represent the views of the host or any particular organization. Sponsorship of the podcast does not necessarily mean an endorsement. Thank you for being a part of our community and we'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.